communication. Yes, yes. Yeah, he's a... I'm talking to people that have a lot of experience in art and people that are just starting off. There's, he's somebody that I just connected with when I was taking a class on photography. And I'd see him in the, in the lab, the photo lab, and, you know, I feel like he's going to go places. He's has, he has sort of that, that thing you need in art if you want to make a living at it, which is the ambition and people skills, and, you know. I mean, the last time I saw you, it was 40 years ago, 1977, you had a fro like this big. I did, yeah, that had, that had to go. I walked into the Los Alamitos magic shop, and um, this little chubby Japanese kid and this big glass thingies and the magic, the magic pad, what do you call the? Yeah, the close-up mat. Close-up mat. Up on that table in the yeah. center. I still see it, beautiful light spilling into that room. And, yeah. yeah, that corner's still there, but that's, you know, a Thai restaurant and a yogurt <laughs> shop now, but that, that corner's still there. And yeah. I drive by it and think about that place. Yeah. And I was and, and and I was thinking about um, what you said to me yesterday about um, creativity that you once put a precedent on yourself to create a thing every day. And I thought that yeah, I went through and figured that out. So that was three years. So that was three sixty-five times three. It's funny when I uh, first, you know, the only social media I'm, that really attracts me is Twitter which is how we reconnect. I know, yeah. And uh, what I like about that is the brevity of it, that it really forces you to condense the thought, the joke, the comment, the observation, the story you're gonna share with someone mm -hmm. to, to something very concise, very distilled down. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so that form appealed to me and uh, When you condensed, when uh, when you did this thing, when right. you created so, the thing, so I was, but I was, I was, I'm sorry. I was, yeah, yeah. Uh, when there was a, there was a time when I don't know, maybe two years into it or something like that, um, it got boring for me. So I, and that's the reason you did it because you needed to somehow. Well, no, Twitter. Twitter I was try, trying Twitter. I don't know for two, three years, and oh, it oh. got boring for me. And you can okay. go back and look. Um, and I just kind of announced on Twitter, see you in a year. And I marked it on the calendar and didn't think about it again. And literally to the day, didn't, didn't look at it, didn't pick it up again for a year. And I think those kinds of ridiculous, arbitrary, uh, the water's perfect, thank you so much. I think those kinds of uh, arbitrary, intentional, I don't know, projects, practices. Um, I think that stuff is useful to say you're gonna do a thing and then do it. Mm -hmm. So another example of that, the reason I bring it up is, I was thinking about, wouldn't it be great to look back and have made a thing every day for, for a year and kind of have that? And I wasn't really thinking about the difficulty. It's funny that I wasn't looking forward in that moment mm. event of anticipating mm -hmm. it. I was imagining it was already done and what that was gonna be like to look back and have, have done that. Interesting. Um, you know, to have more than a thousand things someplace. Um, you imagine the end before you began the task? I w just in that particular case, I was reflecting. That's not a regular practice. That's not the way I ordinarily do okay. things. Uh, I fly a lot, so I'll sometimes do that on long trips. I will. I'll have a mental picture of, okay, you know, 18 hours from now, I'm going to be in a hotel room <laughs> and be able to take my socks off and sit down. So right. I'll just, I'm going to send my brain to that moment now for a moment and now look back and now I'll just have whatever experience I'm going to have between now and then. So why do you but, do that? Why do you think about the hotel room when you're in the plane? Uh, I, I will often do that if I, if I think the experience is going to be arduous in some way. So you think about the end. Well, the, well, the, uh -huh. uh, it's not a thinking about the end. Mm -hmm. It's about um, playing that little game with t telling your mind the story that uh, this is doable. You know, time travel can exist in our heads. 
mm. right? We can travel back in time and think about the first time you walked into that magic shop, <laughs> yes. right? Yes. You just did that. You just time yes. traveled. I did, yeah. And this, I can yeah. think about the end of this meal when we both have, mm. you know, you have an empty bowl in front of you and I have mm. an empty plate in front of myself and right. we're walking out the front door and saying goodbye. And we can really send ourselves there mm. intellectually, right? We yes. can synaptically construct that inside true. our heads. That's true. And, and sometimes that's useful to think, you know, when we're walking, if sometimes if I'm consulting with other folks on a project, I'll say, so if I'm going to work with a large group of people, you know, an audience of, I don't know, uh, about three weeks ago I was in Vegas working with um, one of the medical divisions of Siemens, and I was an onstage presenter for them. Okay. And months before that, when I was talking to people that were going to put the meeting on, so there were 4,500 people in that meeting in one room. Wow. In Vegas, that's a lot of that's Large. a lot of bodies in one room. Yes, especially when you're not going to be singing or dancing or showing them a movie, right? <laughs> to kind of hold their attention and have them. Thank, thank you. you. Right, have them walk away with something in their heads. Right. So what I do is I put everybody on that conference call into the future, and I say, okay, the meeting's over, everybody's walking out. Mm -hmm. If we were to interview people right now, what three things do you want them to have in their heads? Hmm. And this can be a fact, this can be a skill set, this can be a belief, right. this can be a, a place of trust. Because otherwise, why... why so you have it? a plan when you go in. Huh? You have a plan. Well, it, you know, it's if, if everybody... They already know they're going to pay to get everybody in that room. Okay. And I'm, I'm sure someone somewhere along the way thought that that was a good thing to do for a purpose. Not just because they do that every... 12 months. Right. Someone, someone thought it's going to cost a couple million, but I think it's good because. And they might not have ever articulated that. Yes. So it's good for the whole group to get on the phone and, mm -hmm. and internalize and, and become aware of and pay attention to mm -hmm. all of those pending realities. And that the fact that if we kind of think about them and talk about them a little bit, we stand a much better chance of having the dart hit the place on the target we wanted to. Yes, absolutely. So that's why. Yeah, you seem to be very, you seem to gravitate towards spontaneity, to me. Um, yes, I, I do. Well, I mean, that's where I live, right? I live in spontaneity, but I, I send my, my, uh, my brain's a boomerang, right? So I'll, <laughs> I'll throw that out to the uh -huh. future or throw that to the past or throw that to some alternative reality and, mm. and then it'll come back and mm. suggest some possibilities. But yeah, when we're creating wow. stuff, we're always in the moment. Always, always in the moment. Man, this is exactly what I was hoping we'd be. <laughs> <laughs> See, you awesome. didn't know Wishing Well's work, awesome. man. <laughs> Sitting with Weber, 40 years later. Wow. But we did that yesterday on the phone call, right? It was wonderful. A, you yeah. had a, we had a conversation where you kind of explained what your expectations were and weren't and what the experience had been like in the past. And, right. And so you did that exactly. You're right. Right? Right. You're That's, right. That's true. Because right, I had no idea that we could actually make this happen. I mean, I, I didn't, you know, I've seen you in so long. And I was like a little kid last time I saw you. And I don't know, those, those perceptions still sort of live in you because it's, you know, Literally the last time I saw you. But this is like, um, I was telling somebody yesterday that this was really great. That I'm, that, you know, so excited about this. <laughs> I really was. <laughs> this may be, you know, one of the all-time highs of this podcast thing. Aim low. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> you were always that way, you know. You always had that... Um, well, you said that you distilled things. You were good at distilling things. I, I said I like distilling you like things. You like distilling And I, I, I try to distill things, mm -hmm. but, you know, I forget what her name is. Daisy. Uh, this is horrible. I'm going to quote lots of people and not remember their names. Oh. But the good thing is everybody can, uh, everybody can, everybody can duck, duck, go this or, or bing it or Google it. Yes. And uh, duck, duck, go is better because they... Uh, I worked for the Google guys before Google existed. I did, oh. a, lot of, I did a lot of work for... Uh, a venture capital company called um, uh, Buyers. Um, what was it? Frank, 
Oh man, I've been to his home a bunch of times. I'll think of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're still big, but they were the people that put the money behind Sergi Brin and uh, those guys. And I remember meeting them at a dinner in Aspen that I was working at that night, performing. Right. And uh, went it went home and went on the very first Google page before anybody mm. knew what Google was. And I've got the emails of sending it around to folks. And like, mm. um, I'm just not so thrilled about all the data harvesting that's going on right now when yes. we use a thing. I mean, it's always happened, right? Yes. When, when you used to go into the magic shop, yes. it's all about perspective. So when you used to go into the magic shop, one of our jobs was, and no one ever told us this, you just, if you cared, you did this, you remembered what you bought and what tricks you were working on and mm-hmm. what you looked at, right? So we were data harvesting back then. That's true. It was just a lot closer. It was a relationship. That's true. Right, and if you came less in, mechanical, we might we might ask you. Yeah, well, we just you know it was whatever the storage capacity of our head was, right, mm-hmm. and whatever our level of interest mm-hmm. was. And probably you'd remember more for the big buyers than the small buyers. But if you had a relationship with a person, you'd remember things. Right, right. That was data harvesting. You're right. That's true. I never thought of it in that. That's true. But it's not a machine doing it. No, but you know what? It, it, Still a company. It was. It was still to sell a person a thing. Yes, it was, it was still absolutely. to it was still to influence a future choice. Absolutely, that's true. Uh, uh, Caulfield and Byers. Um, can't remember what the first name. Three three partners. Anyway, um, I I, uh, I self diagnosed myself. I have something called. Um, Manic Degressive Syndrome. Manic Degressive. Right. So I will, I will go off on many tangents and oh, I love of it. one thing, but I, I'm pretty good about coming back to the main thread. So where that last aggression started was telling you about this quote from a, a woman choreographer. I think her name was Daisy, and, and I was suggesting people could look it up. I'll look right. it up later, maybe. But she said, the thing she said was, that really stays with me, every dance is too long. Hmm. And hmm. if... I, you know, I, I have reduced that as a, as a practical action to when I'm, when I'm building something or working on something with someone else. If it can be cut, it must be cut. Mm. And uh, the more brutal an editor we can be on the, on the things we're making, the more, like we were talking yesterday about the artist emerges when they're forced into a corner. Yes. It's, you know, that, that the the strictness of that editing process really pushes you into the corner to fight for everything you're going to leave in. Mm. Interesting. It's interesting. I mean, you know as a photographer... Yes. ...that a, bit, a couple of things really fascinate me about... You know, I did photography in, in high, all throughout high school. Okay, I didn't know that. My dad did that as well. And when we knew each other, the guest bathroom at, at my house was a dark room, was a black and white dark room. Awesome. So, and I used to process my own code lift. I really yes. like, you know, doing crazy. Yes. Uh, crazy prints. Really high contrast stuff with the code lift. Um, but everything has a frame, hmm. right? Everything has an intellectual frame. What, the things we include and don't include in it when we're thinking about mm-hmm. it, everything has a visual frame. Mm-hmm. And, and much of being an artist or a photographer or even mm-hmm. a performer or a writer is deciding what to include in that frame, right? It's, right. it's as much about what you leave out, choose to leave out, or, or cut out or crop out as what you choose to leave in. True. And real artists do that in the moment. Mm. You know, it's, it's an easier process to do that later on with Photoshop. Yes. To take out the offending parts. But right. we try to get it in camera. But if, yeah, if you can do it in the moment, mm-hmm. it's a... Right. It's a that is and, true. And we're seeing that, right? That's the thing you see. Yes. yes. I have a friend that's a really good photographer, and he said something interesting. He was talking about shooting uh, television, but he's, a, he's also a 35mm and a, a large format uh, negative photographer. And uh, he said it took him six or seven years to forget about the camera. Yes. Yes. One of the greatest photography classes I took, this guy, Rob, um, the, the, he, we met on a Monday or something, it was like a night class, and he said, it was at college, and he said, I need you to bring a big uh, cloth 
next session. It's overall photographers, you know. Well, what kind, Rob? You know, black, sheer. What are we doing here? We're going to put this over the lens. He wouldn't say. He said it just needed to be about this long. And um, so we could show up to the next session with our cloth, you know. I'm sure we all agonized over what cloth to buy. And then at the, at the session, we had our cloth, we had our camera, and it was film. And he said, okay, now take the cloth and fold it like this. And we folded this. And he says, now put it over your eyes. He goes, we're going to go walk around campus, and you're going to take maybe the best picture you've ever taken in your life. It was just wild. It was just wild. You know, and in the end, after developing and printing and everything, I did, there was one shot in there that was amazing. So, like, I totally get in the way of my art. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. How are your pancakes? Always good here. Okay. When I contacted you yesterday, I've always wanted to do a podcast while I'm eating, by the way. Um, so, so, so many... So distracting. So many notes, so many things fulfilled. I know. It is. Um, it's like eating chocolate on Santa's lap. <laughs> Why did you want to do this so quickly today? Why did you want to do meet today? I mean, I'm, I'm all for this. This is kind of the way I work. Yeah, but, I just... Um, I'm very fortunate in that uh, I'm not at a loss for things to work on. And there's a, there's kind of a ebb and flow, but really kind of a, a build up and then a surge of how, of how work occurs. Okay for me or to me or, or around me. It just turns out that way. So things kind of build up. So I find I'm working on lots of things at a, at a comfortable pace. Yes. But there will be times where a lot of things come together. Yes. And I'm, you know, not sleeping for two days to, mm. to finish lots of things up before I go on a trip or, mm. or have to go work on another project. So when, <clears throat> when I see windows of calm or when I see something really building up, like the tail end of this week, Thursday I've got two, maybe three meetings in Los Angeles, and then Friday I fly up to San Francisco for the weekend, and I've got one, two, three, four other writing projects that have to get finished up, that are mostly done, but finished up between now and then. So it was either going to be today, or maybe next week, or it might get pushed to three weeks. And, and then my, you know, that boomerang brain, when you throw it out, <laughs> if, you can't, if you can't see where it's going to land, mm -hmm. then... Right. I knew there was space today. Oh, I'm really grateful that you... Yeah, it's nice to see you. Yeah. Uh, I thought um, this... Yes. You know, people always ask you what you do, and yes. it's... Uh, Ask, I ask questions, answer questions, tell stories, and make things. Yes, I remember this about... So that's pretty much, mm -hmm. you know, everything I do is going to be one or, or more or all of those things. Mm -hmm. Yes. How wonderful to have that as your living, as the way you make... Or what you do. Yeah, yeah what you do. Money aside, I mean, what a wonderful way to use your time. It's, you know, some or, or all of those things are what most folks do. That's just not the lens through which they see them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> I like this stuff. That's why I sat by the door. I wanted to hear that. I was hoping it was a squeaky door. Well, we got birds or something over here, so there's plenty of squeak. Somebody with a Swiss warbler up there. Oh, it's up there. There's a hole right there, so there's probably oh, a nest up there. They're living up there, huh? Yeah. So, um, yeah, the um, you were saying you're telling me a story about um, not Rob Reiner, but Carl Reiner. Mm-hmm. His dad. 
and how they, it was in Mel Brooks, right? There was an interview on the radio, it was on NPR, I checked it yesterday. So if you go to the NPR site, you can find it. Mm -hmm. um, and they were interviewing Carl Reiner. He in, uh, he's, he's become a very prolific writer and there's some great, he's got some great books. One of my favorites of his is called My Anecdotal Life. Mm. And he just tells life stories, terrific mm. life stories about being discovered at the urinal on a, a, of, a, of a Broadway theater. Mm -hmm. um, crazy, crazy things. And uh, I forget which book had come out, a new, a new book had come out and he was mm -hmm. being interviewed on NPR. And the interview asked him, Tell us a little bit about the routines you used to do with Mel Brooks. Um, it seemed around the 2,000-year-old man, and the, the premise of those was that Carl Reiner was a reporter, and he was interviewing Mel Brooks, who had been alive for 2,000 years. <laughs> and he would ask him, you know, uh, who was the first guy to eat an artichoke. He goes, oh, I knew him, Bob. Yeah, I remember, you know, it was, it was on a bet. And uh, we were all, you know, Bob would eat anything. You know, Bob was the first one to eat a crab. Bob was the first one to eat a, so it would, it would go on and on like that. Um, and it's very funny and very inventive and, and surprising and human and great. It's still great listening to it. Because mm -hmm. um, these were routines they did probably in the 50s and very early 60s was the time of the 2,000-year-old man. This was a time where there were LPs, comedy albums, and this yes. would be a two-sided LP of yes. him interviewing him about religion and humanity and ethnicity mm -hmm. and men and women and religion and mm -hmm. everything. And the interviewer said to Carl Reiner, um, or he was asking him, the very first time you two did that, you know, was it written down or, mm -hmm. or was mm -hmm. it just spontaneous and Carl Reiner said you know that's an excellent question that no one's asked before because mm -hmm. the answer is kind of important and it was a valuable lesson to me uh, Reiner said the very first time we did it we had planned it out and I had written out questions and he had written out answers and we did it and he said it was a little funny because nothing Mel Brooks does is ever completely not funny but it wasn't great it didn't there was no sparkle it didn't sizzle it wasn't alive and I knew it, and Mel knew it. So as soon as we were done, Mel got me over to the corner and said, hey, the next time we do this, don't tell me anything. Just ask the craziest questions you can, and we'll go from there. And Ryan reported, he said, I did, and it was fantastic. It was otherworldly, and it was that good every time, every time after that. Ryan explained, that taught me an important lesson. And the lesson was that Mel Brooks is a true artist, and artists are at their best. Artists come alive when cornered. The way to get the most out of an artist or to provide them with the best setting or scenario is not giving them things, but cornering them. And being on stage with a lot of people that have purchased a ticket in these big theaters and throwing him crazy things from left field really cornering him with the most difficult, craziest things I could think of, a, a real artist is going to fight for survival, and that's what's going to bring all of their richest creative juices up to the surface. Yes. So for myself and on every project I've, I've worked on since I heard that and, and learned that lesson, the, the greater the restrictions, the, the more you can cut, the the harder the situation, the, the greater the demands are, sometimes the scarcer the resources are, yes. or the more precious the resources are, the, the better the work is, because it, it, it's a way of calling up the, the artist. Hmm. Wow. Do you suppose that has something to do with survival? Of course it's survival, yeah, of course. Yeah. So some base... It's core, it's... it's Hmm. That's interesting. And, and, because and, you know, we, we yeah. you know, we, everyone walks around now with a camera in their pocket, right? Yeah. 
it's funny, I haven't thought of this before, but many, many folks have, in the last 15 years, asked the question, what do you think the, uh, how, how has the internet and the um, free flow of information and secrets affected the world of magic, which many okay. people believe is, is based on secrets. And secrets are an important part of it. It's not all of it, but mm -hmm. it's an important part of it. Um, and it, it just occurred to me that there's a great similarity in the effect of the internet on the performance of magic and digital photography and photography as an art form. And the reality is yeah. that just because it's easier for people to do it and there's lots of more people that have access to it, it's, it's not producing an equal proportion of great work. No. no. In any way. Nope. Mm -mm. And I think, now you might meet a kid, you might meet someone who's been only been doing it for three months, and they'll be able to tell you things about, you know, f-stops or, yeah. or, or lighting or, uh, you know, stepping down the speed or, or that might have taken someone else two or three years to learn okay. in the past. But that doesn't make the work any better. No, no. And it's because what advancing technologies never do is make up for the reduction of our human experience. Make up for the reduction of our human experience, right. Yes, absolutely. I mean, so flight time is flight time. That's part of that formula, that recipe. Flight time is flight time, yeah. Right. You know, if you... If you don't know what you're doing, 10,000 hours is going to give you really deep, crappy habits. Yes. But if you're, if you're aware and attentive while you're engaged in, in a practice, often there's going to be those adjustments along the way that time, time will help boil out a lot of the imperfection. So the, um, the um, access to information doesn't... It's only part of the recipe. You still need... Process it. A funny thing about recipes, cooking recipes, yeah. that I, I just a lot of people don't understand. It's it's and it's kind of simple. And I only understood it because of my experience in reading a magic effect and the instructions for performing it out of book, out of print, and yeah. then trying to execute it. Learn. I used to do that. Yeah. It's never good the first time. <laughs> It's not, and a right. lot of people will only cook things once, and they expect it to be mm. cuisine quality, mm. and it's, you've, you've got to cook a thing until you know it. That's a good point. That's true, yeah. That's true, right. That is, I cook, and that is the truth. Yeah. Yeah. So it's the process, or the... That's part of it. It's experience. Experience. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that is true. I wondered about that with um, magic and the internet, and if it had, if the internet had an effect on magic. But I, I think the only my only disappointment, and it's not a surprising disappointment, is that it's produced more people who each individually have access to greater amounts of information, but it hasn't produced um, more or, or even as many quality performers. And, and for me, magic is a performance art. Yes. So yes. It's, what it's really produced is more salespeople, hmm. more people who are producers of product. And it's funny that people who get into magic, a, a large subset of those folks, have, have something about them that's imitative. So they only want to do a trick if they've seen someone else do it. They're, they're afraid to try something they've never seen anyone else yes. do before. Which is why someone like Lance Burton, a dub magician, comes along sometime in the 80s, and then we have this remarkable outpouring of other dub magicians who look a lot like... Right. Lance Burton. But they don't take it any further. They don't, well, they don't change go, it. Or they don't go in a dangerous place. It. They don't yeah. take any chances, right? Yeah. 
was it Joseph Campbell said the treasure we seek is in the cave we fear most, right? So it's yeah. the that that's why yes. That's why people don't make big breakthroughs is because they've learned what they're afraid of. Hmm. I like that. You once had a tweet, and I, I don't remember what it exactly said, but it talked. And I talked to somebody else about it on, on one of these podcasts. Was about you were talking to creators because these devices, these phones, that you, they allow you to create things if you want, if you choose to. And you said something to the effect of like, um, your stories would be, you know, better if they were original stories. Yeah, um, I can tell you exactly what I said. Because I just had someone argue about this uh, recently, and I, you know, they're they're allowed to uh, they're allowed to have a different experience. Yeah, there's this Eric Fromm uh, quote I read last night. Creativity requires the courage to let go of certainties. Mm. Right? Same thing. The cave, yes. the cave we fear that. most. Storytellers, there is always more value when you create the stories you tell. And, and where that really came from was um, I did and, and learned about speaking before TED existed. Um, yeah. Uh, and especially before TED, I mean, I had been to a couple of TED conferences before it became an online phenomena before it became ubiquitous and I, th I think Ted has done a disservice to oh no thanks I think Ted has done a disservice to um, public speaking um, because there was a, a, a time there where you really had to know what you were talking about and my observation was and I was out on the road speaking you know 200 days a year for a couple of years then. Mm -hmm. So I got to hear some of the best people on the, mm -hmm. on the planet who, they weren't professional speakers, they were professional makers, doers, artists, business people, photographers, inventors, um, people who had had life experiences, but who had distilled that down into something that they could share that was still gonna feel okay. compelling for other folks. Um, and what I noticed about the best speakers, the ones that really were the most affecting and effective, mm -hmm. was that those were people who told a story that only they could tell. Hmm. And there were lots of very polished speakers out there who had read a hundred books, right. or had a slick PowerPoint, or had some funny jokes, mm -hmm. or had a great punchline, mm -hmm. um, or, or some sort of catchphrase mm -hmm. uh, and those people were fine mm -hmm. but they weren't great yes. the, the really great people were describing they were telling us a story that only they could tell only they had had that experience so of course you know someone said you know there can be lots of good storytelling you know there's a lifetime of storytelling where the, where the people are, are uh, just good storytellers and it's not their experience at all and uh, yes I totally agree, but those those things will rarely compare. They're good, and they're even good enough, and they can even be great. But for it to be exceptional, 
I, I think it's when, when people are sharing something from a, a singular place of, of experience. That only they could tell. Well, so what, what happens is, you've seen photographers try and take someone else's picture before. Yes, all the time. And it's not the same. No. Because they know where to put the camera, but they don't know why they put it there. Right. And they don't know what was going on in the head of the other photographer. Yes. Why they chose to make that the subject of the image. Yes. And it's on all that about day and that. In that yes, moment. absolutely. Right. So all of that internal process of the artist is is locked away inside that image. Mm-hmm. That's right. And that's what makes it what it is. That's what makes it what it is. Mm-hmm. And someone else who comes along and only captures the surface of that mm-hmm. can't communicate more than they've captured. That's correct. If they do, it's just chance, right? Yes. So a magician who comes along and the reason they do, the reason they perform something is because they saw someone else performing and it appealed to them. Well, it should appeal to you, mm-hmm. but it should appeal to you to go enough to go out and create something on your own yes. that's as inspirational or enjoyable for someone else, not to imitate that. Right. Now, can you be a magician who's got a lot of experience and still be an imitator? Because I, th- I yeah, feel no, no, no. But, really? but, I, but I think those are workmen. Look, there's, there's something. It's, it's. I, I think that gets to a place of functionality. I don't think those people are artists. Um, one of the podcasts of yours I listened to yesterday to just familiarize myself with your form <laughs> um, was the photographer you mentioned his name, Ray Zimmerman or Dave Whalen? I think it was Dave Whalen. Yeah. Um, Younger, right? Late 20s, yeah, Dave, 30s? Yes, yes. So uh, he's, he was the one that w- was so affected by what his art school teachers told him about contemporary art and about cars not being art. And about right. It. And you asked many, many times, what is art? Is that art? Uh, which is one of the most boring questions in the world. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but, it, but it made me... Well, you know, to me it's like belief. No two people ever had a discussion about belief that changed the mind of either one of them. Yes, absolutely. Right, because there's something very core about that, that that goes beyond information and communication and knowledge. Right, there's something something else in there that's more essential. Okay. People aren't going to convince each other, and I think art is the same way. But for me, I thought you might ask that question. So I thought about it a little bit this morning while I was brushing my teeth, and I, I think art is just another form of communication. Not to diminish it in any way, but that's what it is. And, and it can be, sometimes it's just communicating what the artist feels, and sometimes it's just it's trying to communicate an idea to a known audience. Sometimes it's trying to, it's the, the compulsion, the drive, to put an idea out into the world not knowing who will see it. Um, but that's all it is, communication. And, the, and the, the reason that came to mind was because the argument or, or discussion or point of view that you know, car design is not art, of course it is. Right. It's if if you take a look at what was going on in the fifties, everything had to look like a spaceship. Yes. Everything had to look like a phallus, and everything yes. had to look like a a, a, a a cruise ship and a royal carriage and a. I remember so, all those so, phases. Yeah. So all of those things, mm-hmm. all of those things, uh, are forms of external communication. So are you know are they high art? Are they fine art? Arguable. Right, given the person, given the day, given the example, but for me, it's all you know forms of communication, and I don't think it's unique to humans. There's lots of animals that uh, you know will will purposefully Mm. use color to communicate Mm. in in ways that we might look at as artful. Now, they might be using it strictly to get people to use their nest or to trick another species, right? They've, they've probably got some function more than affecting the feelings of another creature, but we can use art to frighten, and there's creatures that can, that can arrange things to keep predators away so that it feels more threatening, or to, or to disguise something, to purposefully camouflage something. Yes. Are, are we saying that it comes from the same place inside their heads? Probably not. You know, is there the same mindful... Uh, intention, probably not. Except sometime in the near future, we're going to be horrified when we find out, you know, mm-hmm. how how aware and what kinds of thoughts whales and dolphins and <laughs> octopus have. So. Sure, that's interesting. So it's communication, art. Well, the, you you two got into the discussion of I think one of his teachers said, if it's functional, it can't be art. Right, and that's ridiculous. 
I agree. No, I agree. Yeah. Because <laughs> you could have the two things happen. You know, I mean, Duchamp proved that to us over and over and over again, right? Right. Right. Yeah. Functional objects, traditionally, their, their core intention is the function and not to communicate. But take a look at all that, you know, that's what design is. Yes. Design is the art of, the, the art within functional objects. Creating a functional object. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, creating a functional object artfully. Well, I wish you were there with me when I was talking to Dave. No, it's okay. It doesn't, you know, <laughs> nobody's right, nobody's wrong. I know, it's I'm just, just joking. I wasn't trying to fight with him either. He, he actually was taking a, that, and he was sort of on, on the fence on what is fine art, and that's how that conversation got started. So, look, if you're not the, if you're not the curator of the museum and figuring out what to put in the exhibit, right? What, what gets in the door and what goes up on the wall and what doesn't? Yes. Who cares? Right. Right. Exactly. That's a good point. That's a good point. You know the. Um, That's it. Seek, you know, all these little bromides I carry around in my head. Yeah. Right? If it can't be cut, it must be cut. The treasure you seek is in the cave you fear most. All dances are too long. Um, seek authenticity, not approval. Is, is an important one. And, that, and for me, that's where all that, you know, does this... Does this live up to the definition of fine art? It's like, holy cow. I like that. Do you want to slice it thinner? Is there, when we really figure it out, when we come up with the perfect metric by which we can measure everything and determine what's fine art, are we going to be in a better place? You know, <laughs> toward what purpose? I love that. Can you say that again about authenticity? Seek, Seek authenticity, not approval. Because then we're being true to ourselves and offering the only thing that only we can offer. Right. Yes. And that goes back to um, you like art that's coming from, or you like talks that are coming are coming from something that are authentic. Yeah, authentic. And they're, and the, they're the only person who can really tell that story. Yes. I'm going to listen to these. This podcast over and over and over again. <laughs> I mean, you really, um, I, I can understand why you do what you do. I mean, that can really help a lot of people, what you're talking about. Because you could pursue some of these things for reasons that are not authentic and waste a lot of time and not get what you want out of what you what you're trying to do, yeah. imitating. That's, it's easy. Yes. It's hard to live with, but it's easy. Yes. You can even get paid for it and get a career in that. And oh, it's so easy. Yes. But those, you know, I, I know those people. And yes. They're really, they're unhappy fast. Thank you. Uh, can I get it? They get unhappy fast. We're good. My joint. Oh, okay. Um, they get unhappy fast. Why is that? Because they're not authentic. You know, I've heard it said by many, many what we would consider famous people, often in, often in Hollywood, that um, they live in a constant state of being, um, they live in a constant state of fear, worried that they're going to be discovered that they're a fraud, huh? right? That everyone else thinks that. So they know it. Yeah, sure. But what is that really saying? What that's really saying is, that what they're what they're doing, they are putting, they are investing so much of the value in what other people think. Now I get it, I understand Q ratings and audiences and mm -hmm. being able to open a movie and box office and all that. I get it, but when you take a look at really authentic artists, um, I think Prince was an authentic artist. Yes. Uh, yes. And the really remarkable thing about him was 
he would he would transform himself every couple of years. The core him was always there, but if you liked Prince music, then you ended up liking every kind of music there was, from stuff yes. that was close to classical to really funky to to jazz to blues mm -hmm. to electronic to everything, it's everything, true. because he wasn't trying to be he wasn't appealing he wasn't trying to appeal to. Uh, a particular audience, he was just making what he felt compelled to make. Right. Right. Yes. That's so important. It's, you know, mm. it's the only thing we have to offer that no one else can. Mm. And that's really important in a world where we have access to everything. And only we have, except only we have access to our own ideas yes. and our own point of view and our own soup of experience, right? Mm -hmm. Mm. Wow. But, you know, I see it all the time with young magicians who... Plumbers. Uh, that's not to put plumbers down, but yes. you know, there's no art in it. It's all function, and it's. But they don't know why, right? A plumber knows stop the leak, get better, get better flow, get mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. They they, they, un they understand pressure and. Uh, but a lot of times you'll just see a performer doing something because that's what they saw the other guy do. Mm. And they could do that and get paid to do that and have a career and. Die and never know I, that I have, they should have maybe found have, more have, of their been, own voice. I have many times said, and I've been quoted in the New York Times as saying, magic is a powerful enough art to support a weak performer. Mm. And, and you know from your experience in it that there are a few rare secrets that sadly anybody can go in and buy in a magic storage or shop or over the internet, you know, on Amazon. And if, if they're smart enough to just do that one thing exactly as it's been designed and nothing more, the secret is in the brevity, if they do that thing and nothing more, they could very well be the best, they could give another human being the most powerful magic experience that other person has ever had live before. And that's with no knowledge and no investment and, you know, minimal practice and so what else does? You can't do that with a skateboard. Mm -hmm. you, can, you know, maybe you could do it with a camera if you got really lucky. Mm -hmm. You got super lucky. You could write like the the monkey selfie is a great example. <laughs> I, I don't know what I don't know what that is. What is that? Oh really? No. So uh, it's it's a big copyright case that's going on right now. So oh, I a, think I might have heard something about right. That. A, yeah. uh, a photographer. I think it was a National Geographic photographer, but a, a wildlife photographer lost a camera or set a camera down someplace. Uh, in a, in a jungle, in a, in a wooded area, and uh, a monkey came over and triggered a photograph itself, touched yes. it and triggered a photograph, and it had great composition, great focus. <laughs> so, Back of the blindfold. So the question was, yeah. who owns the copyright in that image? Mm. Because the, the owner of the camera was, was nowhere near yes. when another living thing intentionally Maybe not knowingly, but, but intentionally triggered the shutter to take that photograph and capture he, that he image. He made that image. He made that image. He made that image, yeah. So the question is, does the sale of that, should the money from that go to the preserve where this animal lives? Or can, does the photographer who just happened to own the device, you know, now right. have the... So there, it's, it's still it's a big, big copyright. Uh, yes. And that sort of speaks on different levels, too. It to, speaks on every level. Yes. It's a great picture. Wow. He, he, right? He clicked this? Huh? He clicked, he pushed the button. Yeah. Phenomenal, I mean. It's fantastic. Yeah. Wow. I love that. So, you know. You know, that makes me think about um, 
the internet, like all this information we have, good and bad, I mean, do you have a methodology or a belief that it needs to be somehow mitigated, regulated in regulated. our lives somehow, yeah? Humans love distractions. <laughs> we like surprise. Yes. Um, and I, I think this is just uh, the next level or a more complex form of similar distractions that we've always had in the past. So, Such as television or... Well, first there were the great orators, right? Mm -hmm. well, I can, can't you imagine... The, let's go back to the very beginning, okay. right? The caves at Lascaux. Yes. Right? And can't you imagine, it's like, oh, Ugg will not go on the Mastodon hunt with me because all he wants to do mm -hmm. is make fire and go back to the cave and look at that picture of the hunt again. He just stares. I mean, he, he just sits in there and stares at that picture of the hunt. And he tells me that he's learning and he's understanding from it how the animals move and where yes. we should stand and how far a, a spear can go. But I, I just think it's a waste of time to be staring at that cave wall all this time. Fascinating. Right? So we went from an image to orators who could tell that story. Yes. Right? You're, you're, not, you're not planting crops if you're, if you're sitting around the fire listening to the storyteller. Absolutely. Right? Yes. Um, although they had that great practice in, in uh, Havana of in the cigar factories, there would always be, I forget the name of the, of the role of this person, mm -hmm. but there was an, always an elder statesman there who would read the newspaper and would read novels to all the people as they were rolling, as they were rolling. cigars. Really? There's, a, there's a special name for it and there's a special status to okay. that person. But that meant that if you were someone that rolled, rolled cigars, you had heard the classics Mm. Right, you'd you'd heard Marquez. Mm. You had you knew all the news of the day. Mm. So, really interesting. Mm, that is interesting, right? Um, that 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 potentially mindless task wasn't mindless at all. Mm. So then we go from the spoken word to to writing, right? Whether that's cuneiform or whatever that is, right? Oh, all day he's just staring at those tablets. Mm -hmm. Why not go out and really? <laughs> why not go out and really see the world and have an have an adventure when all day long they're staring at those tablets, mm. all day long, yes. right? And then yes. we went from that to the books, so now you can carry it around with you, everybody has their own. Yes. You know, and I'm sure, they, I'm sure during the have and have not times of, of reading and of uh, um, literacy, you know, early medieval literacy or illiteracy, I'm sure there were the people that, that said, you know, someday, Everybody's going to be able to read, and even the poorest peasant will have access to a book. Mm. And I'm sure the you know the aristocracy, the landowners, are ridiculous. Right? right. Books right. are rare things. They're expensive. They're yeah. made of goat skin, and they're yes. hand printed a page at a time. Or, mm -hmm. So then we get moving type. You know, then then what comes next? Then we're you know at the even at the time of Napoleon, faxes existed. They were able to send. The, the actual image of a printed page across a great distance using electricity with a very early version of really? a fax machine at the time of Napoleon, in fact. Um, and then we had the Telegraph. There's a really nice small book called The Victorian Inter Internet okay. where all the things we're talking about today, they talked about when the Telegraph came along. That makes sense. Right? It could be used for communication. Things. It could be yes. used for distraction. Except it doesn't, cha it doesn't change things. It doesn't, we're, we're still, you know, fragile and goofy and, mm -hmm. and distractible and <laughs> hoping and dreaming and bumping into each other and doing stupid things. Yes. So it's just, it's, we're, we're, we're kind of doing the same things and every now and then some new things or some different things at a different speed, in a different way, with a different depth, with a different level of competency. Uh, you know, think about what it used to be to retouch a photograph. I remember, oh, God. you know, I, I used to have to go to a guy oh, yeah. that would retouch black and white photographs, and that's what he did. And when it was done artfully, it was invisible. Of course. Invisible. Yes. And, and now, now, literally, there's smart apps that'll do that on your phone where you don't even have to make the decision. Right. right. It finds the imperfections. It cleans up the red eye. It, Dust. and Yeah. Yeah. Yes. 
It'll do all that stuff. Right. So, you know, we just kind of move along. Radio, right? Yeah. Radio is a distraction. Right? Radio, oh, the kids just sit around the radio all day listening. No, honey, but it brings us news and we learn and we're able to travel to foreign places with it and we blah, blah, blah. Mm. And people tried to create uni university of the air where you could learn things over the radio. Mm. And, I didn't know that. Yeah, and then we had uh, television, you know, mm -hmm. the cinema. Then we had television. Yes. You know, all, all of those things were cursed and praised in exactly the same way the internet is today. I like that. And it's just, it's, it's more of an amalgam. It's, it's more things all mashed together. It's mm -hmm. books and movies and still images and... True. That's true. But nevertheless, it doesn't really change anything. It's still a choice. Yes. You know, and if we had some giant uh, electromagnetic event on our planet, <laughs> we wouldn't have an internet anymore. Absolutely. Absolutely, yes. Is, yes. is not at all unlikely. Right, that's absolutely correct, yes. That's right. Which would be, that would be interesting. Well, what's most interesting to me is just to recognize how long dead tree books have, have lasted, right? Yeah, yes, I like that. Have you thought about that before, about the internet and its effect on people and the fact that it's not? Uh, a, a little bit, I think about yeah. it more in terms of I haven't thought about it all the way back to cave paintings before. I love that analogy. But I've thought about it before just in terms of the day-to-day -day distraction. And my, my mental backwards look was, you know, people walk around staring at their screen today. But before that, we all walked around, you know, staring at... in a book or... Well, staring at our phone, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right before that. And before that, we were staring at our Palm Pilot. So we didn't have the same level of connectivity, but it was still we were obsessed with the, the mobility and accessibility of, of data. Yes. And then before that, we were all walking around with our Walkman on. That was my generation. That. that was our generation. That was back in the 70s. And if you take a look in Time Magazine and in Vanity Fair and in Psychology Today, everybody is bemoaning a disconnected generation, walking around, listening to their own thing, not talking to other people, not having a conversation. Yeah. Right? Everybody, yeah. it's become yeah. all internalized. Everybody yeah. literally walking to the beat of their own drummer, to sure. their own song. You're right. No, you're right. But before that. that was transistor radios. Yes. Actually, before that was those tiny TVs, right? Everybody, all the sports fans were walking around. The little black and whites. Yeah, yeah, tiny little. Uh -huh. One inches, two inches. Yep. Yeah, I remember And those. then before that was transistor radio. And if you go back and read those newspaper stories, everybody's bemoaning mm -hmm. sports fans and teenagers lost in that little box. You're you right. Know, completely disconnected from the world. Wow. And I'm sure there was a time where everybody was pissed that their, somebody had their nose buried in a book, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I have a last question for you. Sure. So your mind, you know, do, do you, did you cultivate the way that you sort of simplify things when you solve a problem? Or did that just, were you just born that way? Um, at first, not intentionally, uh, and it was learning by bumping around. But it, it was also learning by bumping around and paying attention. So the, the process or the processes have become refined over time so that I do have tricks or, t or tools or practices that I'll institute or repeat. Um, mm -hmm. But there's also no substitute for just the, the open-mindedness and possibility of discovery. So you don't want whatever your system is to be so efficient that it cuts off the possibility of happenstance or, or surprise or discovery. Sure, use everything, right? Every part of the buffalo. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that's, a, that's another one of my... I, I started a podcast and got two of them done a long time you ago. You did? Yeah, I just got... I'll send them to you. Well, oh, I'd love to hear those. Um, but it was called a bent paperclip. And that's because I got a fortune cookie fortune once that said... The answer you seek is not unlike a bent paper clip. Hmm. <laughs> I like that. Well, the great thing about that is it means nothing and everything, right? That I love is, that, yes. yes. It's what, but what it does is it opens you up to... Oh, no, thank you. It opens your head up to the possibility that anything can be the right tool. Because hmm. it didn't say the answer you seek is a bent paper no. clip. It said the answer you seek is not unlike a bent paper yes, clip. Yes, absolutely, right, right. Why did you stop doing the podcasts? 
I, I did two of them. I would, I'd rather be making another thing than... than mm -hmm. What's nice about what you've come up with is it's a conversation. Mm -hmm. How's that different, do you think? Because well, be nice, even if we didn't have that recording device on the table, it'd be nice it'd to It'd be the same conversation. Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I have to try to talk to people that I want to talk to. And uh, you're one of them. Well, you should, it would also be really interesting to talk to people that you really don't want to talk to. Yes, that would be good. Right? Because yes. that's... The, that's a conversation. Well, if you're indifferent, it kind of doesn't matter so much. But any emotional reaction is an emotional reaction. So folks yes. you really disagree with are folks who... Right. What's really fascinating to me is, you know, I'm just going to fade this out, but when I called you, I mean, almost within our 10-minute conversation, you completely defined everything that I'm doing here. I thought that was so bizarre. I don't know if it's just happenstance or just, just you listened to me and you just read my voice and you knew where I was coming from, even, even before I realized some of this stuff. Because I didn't really realize why I was pursuing this. And sort of in that conversation, you kind of gave me some insight. I don't know why, I don't know why that is. You know, or maybe I read more into it, I don't know. But, um, Probably all of those things are true. Yeah, yeah. But I appreciate you sitting with me and having a conversation. My pleasure. Doing my first food podcast. <laughs> Hopefully the burps weren't too horrible for everybody. The indigestion. And, and for those of you that can't see this, I, I have a completely empty plate and he has eaten two spoonfuls <laughs> because, of meal. You know why? Because I'm so nervous being around you because, you know, I, I, I had the same experience with when I first began to work for Michael York. I, I, um, it's not a negative nervous, it's like I really love... Eagerness? Yes. I really love intelligent conversations and I knew you were going to deliver. <laughs> so I'm just savoring every word you're saying and overthinking things and my heart's going a thousand miles an hour and I just, I, I thought about this all night last night and just, you know, like, again, you're one of the, my, I couldn't believe this was going to be a go. It's like, what? Yeah, so. Well, it's, it's flattering, but you have to understand that it's a, that's foreign to me because I spend most days with myself, so I've kind of become, <laughs> kind of become used to me. <laughs> okay, let me turn this on. <laughs>